90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Oh, doing pretty well. Just trying to survive through the end of the semester. Sorry, I'm going to complain about this till it's over. It's really true. <laughs> oh, hey, it's very close. <laughs> it's, uh, I never thought that my entire life would be based on the academic calendar. You know, I thought that once I was out of school, which seemed like forever, that I'd be over it. But no, no, it's still, I still get just distressed <laughs> as all the kids well, taking know, finals. <laughs> I mean, there's the Julian calendar, calendar the Gregorian calendar. And there's the academic calendar. <laughs> oh, man, it's so true. <laughs> so true. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's uh, that's where that's where I'm at, frantically grading all the crap I haven't graded all semester. <laughs> yeah, well, that's definitely how it goes. Yep, yep. We're still <laughs> we're still working like crazy on workshop material and getting all kinds of fun stuff done to teach with that, and uh, I've got to play with all kinds of data and. You know, it's pretty pretty fun. I've been trying to reproduce a paper that was published in the early 90s mm. and doing it to kind of show the the utility of some of these tools that we've developed. Uh, and interesting. it's pretty funny because it takes all of maybe five to eight minutes to go hit a server, grab all the data, do the calculations, and store the results. Oh. for two years worth of oh. data whereas when they did this paper they analyzed one year's worth of data and it was a major computational project oh no <laughs> i don't know if that's hilariously funny like or hilariously awful you know what i mean <laughs> like <laughs> this yeah, thing well, that it, some poor grad student put his entire work into you did in like an afternoon <laughs> <laughs> right well i mean it just goes to show you how far a lot of these tools have come. Yeah. And what's incredible is all of the tools to do this, to go download the data, to do all this analysis, and the data itself are all free. They're all open source. Really? Yeah. Well, that was a fabulous segue into what we're going to talk about this week. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that. That was good. Uh, I appreciate you setting me up. Um, because this week I wanted to turn the tables a little bit and interview you about open source things. We've been doing a lot of shows and interviewing a lot of people. Um, you know, we just talked to Shane Luffler about, um, his great flyover country app and all this open source stuff that they're using. And just for people who don't have as nerdy friends like I do to tell me about these things, <laughs> I just wanted to talk more about open source because it got me thinking and I wrote down a whole bunch of questions that I did not let you see beforehand <laughs> because I want yeah. to. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not really turn, just turning the tables because I have no clue what you want to know. It, exactly. But it, I, I think I, I like the idea of when you talked about this show, because like you said, we talked to Shane, uh, we had talked to the open drone map folks mm -hmm. and there's a lot of these tools that are out there and freely available and it kind of makes you want to know a little bit more about the ecosystem. Exactly. And I mean, I work with students, you know, the majority of my students were born in the, oh, as much as I hate to say this, the late nineties. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and so, you know, the, just not just the academic world, but I mean, it, the non-academic world too, the industrial world has changed so much. And, you know, we had to use the Encyclopedia Britannica to do <laughs> projects and stuff like this. There, that was all stuff somebody had to pay for. And right now um, there's all this open source stuff. So I guess I just wanted to talk about it and see, you know, how you've seen it evolve and we should probably start with what is open source? Like, what's your definition of open source? Well, so I think that depends on exactly who you talk to. But <laughs> open source in the strictest sense is exactly what it says. The, the source or the code for whatever project you're looking at is open and freely available. Okay. And the reason I say it has some catches is because it depends on what license is imposed on that exactly what you can do with that open code but the, the spirit of it is sharing it's making the work that you've done freely available to others 
So I guess that was a question that I had to a follow up to that is like, what sort of things does the word open source when somebody says it to you? Well, you know, what does it apply to? Because I feel like we talk a lot about open source software, but there's a lot of talk in universities now sort of about open source textbooks. That's a huge deal. And making essentially these published textbooks that publishers have made so much money on. And, you know, anyone that's taken any semester of college knows how expensive textbooks are, <laughs> like ridiculously so. So we have a huge push for open source textbooks as well. Um, but I don't know what this licensing thing is. That's interesting. Yeah. So there's the idea of open source software, which is probably the one that most people are familiar with, sometimes referred to as FOSS, free or open source software. Okay. Um, so... There's that. There's the textbooks, which we've talked a little bit about before, and I'm going to link in to the show notes a video, uh, Lindsay Hege SciPy Talk, ah. talking about how they do open source class material, and that inspired me to do the open source techniques of geophysical experimentation class right. last year. Excellent. Uh, but open source can also apply to things like hardware, so hmm. circuit boards or plans for flower beds or... Uh, crop rotation methodologies, or laptop designs. So I just had this flash of like, so Wikipedia is the first open source whatever? <laughs> I don't know that I would say it's the first. In fact, I know I would say it's not the first. The ultimate. But it is a great example <laughs> of open source knowledge. Huh. Huh. Okay, excellent. And then since you said flower beds, obviously I thought of Pinterest. Probably not something you dabble in much, but... Yeah, and I don't know that I'd necessarily consider that. Well, it's out there and it's free, but I don't know that you can say it's open source because it's not licensed. Ah, okay. So back to this. So what does that mean in terms of licenses? Because um, I was going to ask, are there levels of open source? And it sounds like, yes, there are. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and so... If you don't have a license, if you put something out, if you just post your code online on your, your own website or whatever, and you put mm -hmm. no license with it, technically nobody can use it. It's your own proprietary copywritten J property. Just because of the fact that it exists on your personal website? Well, it, it exists. The fact that you put it out there is no different than if it were just sitting on your disk and you had never shared it because you have not put any kind of terms on its use. Wow, okay. And so by law, it is locked down by default. Hmm, interesting. Even now, if you provide all of it. Right. Now, granted, good luck trying to yeah. enforce any of that. <laughs> right, exactly. But, but strictly speaking. Strictly speaking, it's locked down. Hmm. And before we go any further, I'm going to say that I am not a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> So this is my understanding, but what you want to do is apply some kind of license to it for more informal things like short code snippets, examples. Uh, you know, if you ask me how to do something on, on a message board or something, that's generally considered open, uh, Example code from places like SparkFun or Adafruit, a lot of times they have what they call the beerware license, which <laughs> says you can do whatever you want with this, but if you ever see me in real life, you owe me a beer. <laughs> I want that license on everything I say and do. <laughs> right. And that's not really an official, you know, th that's just a yeah. an agreement sort of. But there are a lot of licenses, things like the MIT license, uh, the Apache license, GPL LGPL, all of these different licenses that all have different terms. So some say, well, you can use this, but you can't use it in a commercial product unless you purchase licensing rights from us. Okay. Or you can use this with the explicit acknowledgement that we have no legal responsibility and we're not responsible for anything bad that happens. So that, that would be more like an MIT license. You can do whatever you want with this. You can make it into some multi-million dollar product and not release the code, and we don't care, but you can't come back to us legally. Okay. There are other licenses that say you can use this, but if you make any changes, if you make any modifications or improvements, you are required by the terms of the license to share those with the community. Ooh. 
So those are more like the, the share alike licenses. Uh, so there's all these different nuances to exactly how you can use the material. Wow. Um, so, I get, so you can have a license that basically says, do whatever you want with this. So even though yeah. it's just like you posting it so anyone could do whatever they want, now you've got this official thing that says, do whatever you want. Yeah, and a lot of people, especially in academia, don't realize this, that technically if you just throw your code up on your website as a big zip file and there's no license with it, then if a business wanted to implement that in some kind of project, they couldn't. Wow. Hmm. That is very interesting. So who's there to enforce all this? Oh, well. (laughs) (laughs) This is where it gets tricky because... I don't have personal experience with licensing battles, Mm -hmm. but a lot of times it's whoever has more money to keep lawyers on staff the longest wins. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, (laughs) So there's that aspect. (laughs) There are some groups, for example, the Open Source Hardware Association or OSHWA, that they now have this open source hardware certification that you can apply for. And if your product meets all the checkboxes, it's stamped as certified open source. And there are some legal ramifications behind if somebody infringes on that intellectual property. Ah, okay. That's, so, that seems cool. Yeah, but I think in a, in a lot of sense, it's kind of like a patent. You know, you can have a sword patent or a shield patent. And again, it really depends on who has the best lawyers. That is really interesting. I never would have thought that just throwing it out there for everybody is actually not what you can do. Like, I would have thought that was the definition of open source. Yeah, so you know, if you post a picture online, uh, technically, unless you put some kind of a license on that, like a Creative Commons license, mm-hmm. which is what many of the images on Wikipedia are, right. uh, technically, people have to credit you and get permission to use that image. Hmm. Hmm. Does that ever happen? No. People click Google image search and drag whatever they want. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But that's how it's supposed to work. Oh, interesting. Okay. So all these images in these open source textbooks then? Creative Commons images then? Generally Creative Commons images or content that was created by the, the textbook writers. Right. Yep. Right. Okay. And then in general released under some kind of very permissive license by them. So if you got this thing, textbook, software, whatever, and you're mm-hmm. like, I want to do this, why would you choose the option of open source versus for profit? I mean, we talked about this with Shane, and I'll, I'll follow up with that, but what is your thoughts behind this? Like, why would you do this? Well, for one thing, it's good community citizenship or stewardship to share what you're doing. Okay. Uh, My personal philosophy on it is that life is too short for everybody to write the same drivers. (laughs) So the fact that there are multiple people at multiple companies spending large amounts of time and money doing the exact same thing because they're too stubborn to share Uh is very frustrating. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we all benefit from open source. There's, I mean, you, you use the internet and all the Python and JavaScript things that are getting driven on there, a large amount of those are open source. And so it's a good thing to do to contribute back to the community that you are pulling from. Mm-hmm. So those are the, you know, the, the <laughs> reasons that satisfy... <laughs> your brain yeah but... <laughs> exactly <laughs> my follow-up specifically says it can't be entirely altruistic <laughs> right it, it definitely can't so <laughs> there you do have to everybody has to eat at the end of the day right yeah exactly so software costs money sometimes mm-hmm. it ultimately definitely costs money somewhere somewhere yeah exactly uh, yeah. so there are several ways that companies end up making money from open source projects or open source creators do. So there are some projects that are funded by public funds, so grants and that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. and are open source by necessity of that. 
Okay. Uh, a big, huge one is support. Okay. So, for example, anybody can go download Red Hat Linux and run it on their servers. Mm-hmm. Or you can pay and get support. Oh, that's what you mean. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So take uh, uh, Hadoop, some of these other internet stacks that they're difficult to set up and you need to have an expert to help you implement them in your situation or setting up Oracle databases or whatever. You're paying this company for their consultants or for their consultancy help on your project, helping you get set up, you get up and running because they're the experts at it. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, with a lot of these open source projects, who do you call if there's a problem? Right. Yeah, That's, exactly. That scares a lot of companies. Yes. <laughs> because it's not like you're going to phone up Microsoft who you have this big support contract with and say, hey, you know, we're having these problems with our machines. If it's a large amorphous group of coders that are contributing to some open source project, that generally they're very responsive, but they might say, well, this is a bug and we're not going to be able to get to it for a while. Mm-hmm. And all that time it's affecting your business. Right. So you can pay to have a company support your installation of things or uh, be on call for you. So, I mean, this happens. There are these things, these companies that exist that are based on this free open source thing. Like they're just the rented experts in it. Oh, many, many companies. Uh, Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Red Hat would be an example. Uh, Continuum Analytics, the people that do Anaconda and Conda for Python. Oh, okay. Um, InThought, who does a lot of Python and Canopy. Uh, those are just a couple of the big examples that come to mind hmm. right off the top of the head. That you know, These are large companies with non-trivial amounts of employees Not that trivial. are supporting open source software. Uh, so that's, <laughs> that's great because I felt like all these questions made me feel like a money grubber. But, you know, there's humans. So I, I, knew, well, I knew there had to be a catch somewhere. <laughs> yeah, like I said, everybody really does need to, to put some food on the table at the end of the day. And providing support isn't the only way to do it. Another one, and a really common one, would be uh, customization or plug-in creation. Ah, okay. So you've got this thing, but now you're going to make some special attachment for the thing. So think about the instruments in your lab. Do any of them run on software that's free? Anybody can go download it? Um, well, yeah, I guess so. Um, I guess that our magnetic susceptibility meter, you could get the software for it. I mean, why you would want to without the meter, I don't know. But you can absolutely download it online. Okay, so maybe not the best example, but we'll run with it. So let's say you needed to do some kind of new novel thing that the software can't do. Okay. Yeah, I have that problem now, probably. <laughs> okay, so you could talk to the company or maybe another consultant, but you could probably go back to that company and say, we need this custom functionality. And for a price, they will make it for you. And either, you know, if you're paying them, they're probably going to release it just to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this would be big in things like financial uh, markets. So financial firms are big clients for a lot of these open source software projects. Oh, okay. So like personal analytics stuff that goes along with open source things right or you know say your company wants a dashboard that shows Uh, everything that's going on in the plant and that kind of thing so you you might create custom plugins to talk to that person's database system and their plant systems and whatever to make sure that they can get exactly what they want out of it so by developing these things for them you're making money using the open source tools that you freely give away and support. Okay. Interesting. See, that doesn't seem so bad. I mean, when you say it, you know, everybody's got to eat. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. So, well, and- so that makes sense. And plus, if you've got this very specific knowledge, you know, it seems like you should be able to flaunt it in some way, like making money. Well, I mean, again, life's short, so you can't be an expert in all of these different things yeah so uh, another great example is the mac operating system 
it's built on top of an open source Linux kernel. You know, you blew my mind when you told me that the other day. <laughs> yeah. I had and no occasionally idea. Apple submits patches back upstream. So scratching scratching their backs. Exactly. So, yeah. Okay. That is super interesting. Um I I never knew that because that seems like a massive moneymaker, obviously. <laughs> yeah, and so I don't I mean you can think of things like um Drupal, WordPress, some of these other things that you can go get for free, but they're definitely not easy to get running on your own. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, so generally you pay somebody. Right. And a lot of times that's totally worth it. Exactly. <laughs> like you fixing my magnetometer. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I had that question, you know, why would you ever release anything personally open source versus for profit. And Shane had an answer that I hadn't thought about. And it was the fact that, you know, they had this great idea for the flyover country app and they basically needed immediate money to implement it. And they thought that it was such a good idea that they could get NSF funding right away. And they did. Um, and that would have not been an answer I would have thought of for that question. Yeah, definitely. So there's a lot of projects. The um, the generic mapping tools, GMT, <laughs> yeah. is an open source software project uh-huh. that is NSF funded. Uh-huh. Uh, there are a number of others. OBSPI, I don't think, has any NSF funding, but uh, that's an open source seismology package that does an incredible amount of processing. Uh, open Detect. And there are just a lot of these tools out there. And, you know, one thing that I guess for something like Open Drone Map, it's not as huge of a concern. But for something that runs, say, on some kind of web technology, mm-hmm. security is a big concern, right? I would imagine so, yeah. Right. So if your source code is open, you have thousands more eyes if it's a large project trying to find bugs and holes. Right. So there may be a company that maintains some software package but let's say i'm using it and in the process of customizing it or messing with it i find a problem it's very common in the open source community to fix the problem and contribute it back so by open sourcing your software you're increasing your developer base so now this is a really cool example as well um that i hadn't thought about that's great. So instead of paying other people to look at it or whatever, um, you do it that way. And I, I just listened to another podcast <laughs> that was talking about someone that wrote a book. And she basically wrote this book based on these tweets that she did for, you know, two years. And she said Twitter was her editor. And she said if a tweet wasn't funny, you know, if it didn't get shared more than X number of times, and in her case she had a ton of followers, you know, she got rid of it. And so – that's the sort of same sort of thing, right? That's like open source editing. Oh, definitely. And so the textbook, you know, you might get other teachers that are using it that find bugs in the textbook, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that could definitely happen. And it's just uh, it's a format that encourages this sharing this cross pollination of ideas and in my opinion a lot of times you come out with a better product because you've got more people looking at it and it's generally moving pretty fast so instead of having one large release of microsoft word every year you're having five or six small releases of some open source project because there are a lot of people that are able to push on it at different times right yeah exactly um it's i mean i talked about this in the when we talk to the ODM guys, um, it that's very heartwarming to me <laughs> because all my questions here are about like, mm, everyone wants to make money. So why is this even a thing? But that's really cool that it does actually work. I mean, Linux is probably an excellent example of, right, wh- how this works because that's not, you know, a flash in the pan software thing. <laughs> oh, no. And so Git... You know, we've talked about version control some. Mm. Uh, Git's another example. That's a free tool. Now, there's a company, GitHub, where you can go sign up for a free account and put your projects up on GitHub, and they're publicly viewable. And that costs you no money. That's all running on their, on their servers. You're using their storage space. Mm-hmm. But 
if you want private projects, then you need to pay. There you go. This is, I mean, so, Dropbox too, right? Yeah. So there's where some, some money's coming in as well by being able to lock things down or customize or privatize them uh, through some of these services. But Git, Git arose out of you know, the same thing. There was, they needed version control for the Linux kernel. I believe they were using, I believe it was CVS, uh, which the license got changed and they could actually no longer use it. Oh. So Git was born out of this necessity. <laughs> uh, this, oh, God, no. What are we going to do now? <laughs> yeah, and you know, there are licenses. We talked about all these different ones, but there are some licenses where, let's say, it needs to have certain re-release uh, terms or you can't release certain parts of it or things like that where maybe you can't incorporate it into your project because your licenses are incompatible. Mm, okay. So th there are some, some downsides to all this licensing and different terms where, I mean, there are some projects where we would love to incorporate some of the code that they've got into what we're doing at work, but we can't because the licenses don't match up. But this also is something where you might be able to go look and someone else has come up with something to circumvent that, right? I don't circumvent the right way to well, say it, but yeah. you can... It's not, yeah. it's not nefarious or anything, but... <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can't, you know, go copy-paste, take the code. Right, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of just sharing of ideas so that happens between projects like that. So do you find that when you're looking at all this open source stuff, um, are you surprised at how people attack these problems in ways that you would never have thought of? Oh, yeah. There are a ton of smart people out there. Yeah. Thank God. Uh, <laughs> None of them are in politics, but. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I look at, you know, different projects and see how they did things. You just say, oh, that's clever. Or, oh, that's using some library that our function that I didn't even know existed. Uh, you learn a lot by doing that. Or you see somebody's, well, one thing that we do a lot is we see somebody's documentation page. And we go, oh, ours doesn't do that. And that looks really cool. How did they do that? And you can go dig around and figure out how they did it and implement it on yours. So there's a lot of that kind of thing that happens. And, you know... Even though these are generally volunteers, sometimes paid. So, for example, I'm somebody that's paid to work on open source software. Yeah. Um, but volunteers and paid alike, the support time is generally incredible. Okay. So one of the projects that we depend on uh, that's also open source had an issue when running on Windows systems because of some weird file path issues. And, you know, we filed a bug and I said, I would not mind taking a whack at what's going on here if you can point me in the right direction, but I'm not going to have time for a few weeks. We have all these workshops and we have some other meetings coming up and I legitimately intended to go take a whack at the problem myself and somebody's already fixed it. Nice. Yeah. That's got to be super gratifying. But there's also the other side of that as open source maintainers, where occasionally you get somebody that is yelling very loudly that something doesn't work and you should drop everything and solve their problem right now. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And th there are cases like that where it's, you know, well, we'll give you your money back. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, it's... These are people on the other end of the keyboards, yeah. which sometimes gets forgotten. <laughs> I think oftentimes <laughs> that gets forgotten. Um, so why is this taking off so well? Is it the easier access that the computing environment provides today? Where does this big sense, this is another sort of cynical question to you, where is this big sense of like, cooperation <laughs> born from do you think well so i think it's sort of a standing on the shoulders of giants type deal okay so technology right now be we talking about open source hardware open source software open source textbooks whatever the problem is so intractable for one person mm -hmm. 
or even a relatively large group of people that the only way to solve it <laughs> is to have open source. So this is really great because I feel like if you stop and think too much, you get very depressed about those facts. You know, the facts that you said a couple times now, the whole why keep reinventing everything? Like, I just asked you this question. It was not online the other day, but when we were talking about, like, should I even bother learning HTML? And you're like, no, absolutely don't do that. And I feel like I'm cheating the system because it's like, well, what if I want to build a web page? And you said, no, you don't need to. There's all this other stuff now that's based on it. It makes it easier. Why learn this thing when you don't have to? And, um, you know, it gets very sort of, like depressing just to think man there's all this knowledge but this is sort of you're putting it in a very positive tone of like why do it when you've got all these other people to help you achieve your well, goal so if you really want to get down to it here <laughs> and think okay well i want to do something from first principles on my computer yeah remember that in the end Everything you're doing on your computer comes down to a series of ones and zeros made by little switches called transistors, and there's millions of them on a chip. <laughs> yeah, that depressed me again. <laughs> so, so to watch that cat video, you're running a web browser that depends on a massive amount of technology, that there's all of this compiled, uncompiled code, everything that eventually is going down to assembly and machine language that is actually getting translated into one of a very limited set of instructions that your processor can comprehend. Mm -hmm. And that is making your web browser work. And then that computer is talking to another computer that is totally different than it. Could be a different processor, different architecture, different operating system, somewhere else in the world using electrical pulses and light pulses. <laughs> So getting from the electrical and light pulses into doing these basic operations and then all the way up the stack to where you're watching the cat video <laughs> is an incredible amount of code. Uh, that I'll never learn. <laughs> and it's the same with hardware too. So you're using an Arduino, let's say. Well... There are things that are happening when you compile your sketch for the Arduino. Again, we're going down to very basic instructions, but that's running on silicon that somebody purpose or team purpose designed to be able to comprehend these instructions. So there's there's the whole hardware level to it that's as well. Oh. Well, see, now I just got super depressed, like looking out into a bunch of galaxies. And <laughs> well, I mean, it's amazing to me that any of it works. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You just talked about, <laughs> if you using, really think about yeah, it. Yeah. You just talked about using an element to turn on a blinky light. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, you have silicon that's deposited in some funny pattern and somehow that ends up doing math. Yeah. Like what? <laughs> so it's, it, the stack is just so vast and so incredible that to get things done, you have to depend on other, other tools. And you just, at some point, you just have to let go and say, I know this works because of this, and then move on. Exactly. Hmm. And, you know, there was a, an embedded episode uh, a few weeks ago uh, talking to a compiler engineer mm -hmm. who, okay, you're using GCC or you're using Clang to compile your C code into an executable. What actually happens in there? As it turns out, it gets translated to a totally another thing called the intermediate language. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and then goes down to the, <laughs> to the assembly. And depending on exactly what the compiler is doing, the assembly can be a little different or different levels of optimized. Or, like, it's, there's just such an incredible stack that there are so many people when you type a single command that are responsible for that working. Wow. And we all fit into that chain somewhere. Wow. Okay. Hmm. So it's either positive or depressing. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to choose to think about those positive aspects. <laughs> oh, I, I definitely think about the positive aspects because to me, this is a really encouraging step forward uh -huh. in terms of us as people 
starting to share knowledge. Working together. So everybody still has their secret sauce. You know, SpaceX (laughs) is not going to release their secret sauce for their rocket engine. Uh, Yeah. That, That is never going to change. But there are so many things that are released and are available. And there are so many good ideas out there that the thing that we're really short on is time to execute them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the technology's there, generally. The ideas are everywhere. Uh, and, you know, I said that, you d- said Wikipedia, and I said that wasn't one of the first examples of mm-hmm. open source. Mm-hmm. I highly doubt, well, okay, so you could go way back to early libraries and and all that, but, but without going back to ancient times, uh, <laughs> I, I thought it was really cool that the uh, the Pennsylvania Railroad, mm-hmm. which they have a museum in Altoona, Pennsylvania, where I near where I used to live, they had this massive lab. It was a quality lab where they would test everything. They would test many different kinds of light bulbs to see which would last the longest to use on their train engines. Uh, they would test gloves to see which were the most durable and would last the longest for their workers. They even tested brooms to see <laughs> which brands of brooms would survive the most sweeps. Wow. Okay. And so, so it's a very early consumer report, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. They released it all for free, all of their results. No kidding. Mm-hmm. So not consumer reports, but... <laughs> so not consumer reports, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But you know we're we're talking a massive amount of effort and data that was released, and their competitors could and did use it. Yeah, wow. I mean, I I would argue that that is going back to ancient times because that was pre-internet. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, awesome. well, I mean, you know, we well, I would say a lot of people listening probably remember. I, I certainly <laughs> remember doing stuff in high school with no. There was no YouTube. There was no yeah, exactly. good Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so what? what's behind that? What's behind them doing that then? I mean, obviously, I understand what's behind them doing the experiment, but what's behind them releasing it publicly, do you think? Having been to yeah. the museum. <laughs> yeah, nobody had a good answer, which I thought was interesting. Uh, huh. Huh. <laughs> I, I'm really unsure other than maybe goodwill. Okay. Because nobody's paying them to test things, at least that I know of. Mm-hmm. So I have a feeling that it's probably goodwill, and it's nice. If you're, if you're controlling data, you're investing money in the process of controlling it. So it would cost them money to keep this private, protected, and distribute it in a private and protected way. Whereas if it's public knowledge, it's a lot easier to distribute yeah. if you're not caring about keeping it secure. Mm-hmm. That's so maybe there was some financial benefit there too. But still, that's pretty awesome. I appreciate that. Um, so you've kind of already, I've got, I've got a couple more questions than, well, actual questions that I've thought about, (laughs) but you've kind of already done this one a little bit, man, I must've been really cynical when I was writing all this stuff. So where is this open source software or anything we're talking about failing? Like, obviously there are people fighting over ideas and stuff, right? I mean, you, you kind of talked a little bit about the licensing, but... Like, are there people fighting over the best way to do this stuff? You know, they're humans. I'm assuming there's fighting involved somewhere. Yeah, there's always disagreements about things. And there are definitely times where, a lot of time we call it forking. <laughs> okay. <laughs> F-O-R-K-I-N-G. Uh, <laughs> so this is where somebody wants to take a project in a totally different direction for a you know, a reason that they want to do it this way in their company, or maybe there was a fight and somebody splits off. And now that you have two versions of this project going. Okay. Uh, so a great example would be Arduino. Oh, really? So the two co-creators of Arduino, uh, I'll link in Pi? some stuff if you want to get into it, but there was, there were disagreements. And for a while there were two Arduinos. Oh, and there was a pretty nasty legal thing going on between them. Uh, 
at last year's New York Maker Fair, they made up and now things are getting back on the right footing. But for a while, you know, you go get this fork or this fork of the Arduino IDE. No kidding. Or this is certified. This is certified. This is, I think they call it Genuino. This is a certified <laughs> real Arduino. And the other person would say, no, this is a real Arduino. Uh, so there are fights that happen. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, it's like in anything, there are fights. Um, an open source drone, since we were just talking about drones a couple weeks ago, an open source drone flight controller. Uh, it's called Open Pilot or Libre Pilot. I don't remember which way they went now. They were called one, and then there was a fight, and there was a split, and the project rebooted as an, something under a new name. Okay. And unfortunately, it's sort of been fizzling out. Mm. Okay. So the same problems as there are in for-profit ventures, basically. Oh, yeah. But most of the time, I would say, people in open source are very cooperative. You always have a couple people that aren't. but I feel like if you're going to even make the, you know, make whatever you're doing open source, that that's probably your intention anyway. So I wondered if there was less of this in the open source community. Yeah, probably. Uh, You know, you're not, again, you're not trying to protect something and beat people off it with a stick unless they tell you the magic word. Yeah, right. Uh, So there's, there's a lot of that. And, you know, when I go to SciPy every year, We've talked about it the last couple of years that I've gone there, how friendly that conference is. Mm-hmm. It's hundreds of people that all believe in sharing knowledge, sharing code, doing things together. And it's a great group to be with. Is that how the software carpentry stuff is too? Yeah. Yeah. So software carpentry, all that's open. You can go to their website and go through all the material and request to make changes to it or whatever. Okay. Uh, so that's all open. That's awesome. Um, So I guess my last question is super easy, but also, you know, there's a, there's a harder aspect to it, but why do you think this is important to science? Ooh, yeah. (laughs) This one's already running long, so I'm going to be brief, but. uh... (laughs) (laughs) So we'll have a part two where you only answer this one question. (laughs) Well, so first of all, most science, everything that you do is required to be open if you're funded by the National Science Foundation. Right. If you hold on to your code, which some people still do, you are in violation of your agreement with the National Science Foundation when you accepted that money. Hmm. Okay. So if somebody asks you for your material, well, you should be making it available anyway. But if somebody asks you for your material and you deny them, it's very easy to go to the Science Foundation very easy in theory. The practice yeah. would be harder. But going to the science foundation and saying, look, you know, this was publicly funded research and there is no sharing going on here. So sort of a FOIA type thing. Gotcha. Um, that is the simple answer. The more complicated answer, I think, is to make sure it's right. Okay. Yeah. I figured that would be your answer right away, actually. <laughs> Yeah, because (laughs) there are so many calculations, so many things that we do that you type the code in and you run it and you say, okay, that looks right. And you go on. Mm -hmm. And that's not how it should be. Uh (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, nature pointed this out and this actually made a huge deal, right, about this irreproducible result problem. Yeah, because not everybody has a good detector for when things are wrong yeah and you have to be you know an order of magnitude or two wrong to notice right in a lot of problems and a a factor of a factor of two could slip by pretty easy yes exactly and a lot of times when you're on your 12th iteration and it finally works you don't care if it's reproducible you know so yeah and so i think that's a great reason to have it is so that other people can look at it and it's a good reason to also do testing. Right. So take a problem that you know the answer to and make sure that your software gives you the right answer. And every single change you make, do that again. And you can automate this so it's not at all a problem for you to do. <laughs> but 
it's one of those things that everybody's done it. You make a change in one function somewhere in some other file, and then a few months later you try to run something and you realize that you broke all the things. <laughs> oh, which is totally relatable. <laughs> yeah, so that's not where you want to be. In hardware, it's a similar story, right? So you want to be able to look at the hardware, figure out where there are problems, or figure out how to make it better. So if I'm looking at what some other lab did, I'd like to be able to look at their hardware and know exactly how they process that signal and what things got done to it before it got shown in the pretty plot that's in the paper. Right. Yep. Exactly. So last one. Why is this important to humanity? Ooh. <laughs> yeah, so um, I'll go back to three. what I said. <laughs> I, I'll go back to a little bit of what I said earlier, I think, which is we're only going to get further by doing this together because these problems are so hard. Uh, nature is not a simple system. <laughs> and so trying to understand it is difficult. Trying to use it, so take these complicated physical laws that we think we have an idea of what's going on and do something like make a computer chip or, you know, push some kind of coding technology or whatever. These are really, really hard things. And the only way we're going to get there is by doing it together. Yeah. I actually starred your little answer of, you know, these are so many intractable problems out there. So excellent. Okay. Yeah, so that's my my soapbox. Great. That was exactly what I wanted to hear. That was super good. And um, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I think talking about intractable problems is a great lead into our uh, fun paper. (laughs) Ooh, yeah. So you did the smooth transition this time. (laughs) That's Uh, right. (laughs) I will not be one up on segues. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! And so this fun paper, I actually have heard about, and there are some other resources I'm going to point you to online. Um, But Adeloy et al., Fragmentation of Rods by Cascading Cracks. Subtitle, Why Spaghetti Does Not Break in Half. (laughs) Oh, beautiful. (laughs) So this is Physical Review Letters. This is from 2005, so a little over 10 years ago now, scary as that is. Oh, Yeah. And this paper looks at if you ever have taken a piece of spaghetti uncooked in your kitchen and bent it until it breaks, it doesn't break in half like a pencil would. It breaks into multiple pieces. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, this is a problem that is really hard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's the part so, I have highlighted right there is that um, it's a, this simple and intriguing experiment which puzzled Feynman himself remains unexplained to date. Oh, Richard Feynman and um, was it Gelman, somebody else like that, they were fascinated by this problem. And <laughs> Which is a great problem because, like, I mean, you have to do this when cooking, and you're like, hmm, why, why are there all these extra pieces of tiny little pieces of spaghetti? What are the physics behind this? Well, in, in, in his book, so he, he wrote a book called Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, yep. among several other books. The Joy of Finding Things Out is another one. Um, he actually talks about this a little bit in there and all of the stuff they went through to try to figure this out. And they had this idea that it might have something to do with when it breaks an elastic wave. So like, you know, when you wave a slinky, mm-hmm. uh, propagates back down and causes it to break. Because when you break it, you feel some vibration. Right. And so they went as far as to try to do this in a fish tank because they thought the water would help damp the vibration. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a lot of thought that's gone into it. And, you know, it seems like a silly problem. But think about industrial processes. Again, you're lifting big chunks of steel. You're lifting a drill string. Drill yes. strings yeah. that go down miles underground can stretch tens of feet yes the steel stretches tens of feet because it's an elastic material and there's so much weight and force on it which is the craziest thing to think of and also which is why engineers get paid so much because 
tens of feet at depth is a big deal if you're trying to hit a 10-foot target. <laughs> well, and if you've got a mile or a mile and a half or more of drill string below you, mm-hmm. and it does what the spaghetti does and breaks in multiple places, yeah. mm-hmm. you just created a multi-million dollar problem. Oh, yeah. That's for sure. Because <laughs> then you got to go fishing. Then you have to fish it out, yeah. <laughs> and it's not nearly as fun as normal fishing when uh, you're dealing, yes. doing it with uh, an oil derrick yeah. and it's... tools that weigh tons. Uh, and more than $20,000 a day worth of rig time, yes. Exactly. <laughs> um, so what I didn't realize about this, this paper is very math intensive, um, much more so than I was ready for, I will admit. But I didn't realize that, okay, Well, this I realized. So we talk about spaghetti, but it's modeled not as spaghetti, right? It's modeled as how the behavior of a thin rod. Um, I didn't know there was a set of equations that deal with the dynamics of thin rods. Oh, the Kirchhoff equations, man. Yeah, I know. So I feel like I should have known that. (laughs) Well, these are, they're fluid dynamics, but we didn't deal with them a lot in meteorology because... Kirchhoff equations, they're not limited to thin rods, but they describe the motion of rigid bodies in ideal fluids. Right. And so we don't care about that. (laughs) So we're dealing with a rigid body, body, or rigid being elastic in this case, body, uh, (laughs) in air, an ideal fluid. But you could use this to describe, you know, dynamics of something moving through water, like a boat, or they're a pretty well-known thing in fluid dynamics. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I, I hadn't seen it in this context and was, you know, that's, it was very interesting. Yeah, and they do go pretty in depth on some of the integration schemes that they've used and mm-hmm. uh, the modifications that they've made. We're not going to go there, but <laughs> it's there if you would like to. Um, so the other part that I will make you talk about then, though, is they talk about what they do is they basically you know bend this spaghetti where one end is is held in place right and they kind of ignore the first breaking of the spaghetti right yeah so the first breaking of spaghetti is going to happen at the point of maximum curvature mm-hmm. so if you're bending this around or in their case they, they, they can assume that they're going to bend it at a constant curvature in their formulation. Right. Yeah. But you're going to have an initial break in the center mm-hmm. of the length. But that doesn't explain what happens with the other breaks. And right. they have a weird set of boundary conditions here that if yeah. you do this in your kitchen, you're not going to have these boundary conditions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so if you do it in your kitchen, you probably are going to hold both ends of the spaghetti and mm-hmm. bend it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I would think. That is a much more difficult problem to solve. <laughs> So let's make it easier. <laughs> so what we're doing here is we're fixing one end. Assume that you can glue that end to the wall. Right. And then we're bending the other end up. Right. Yeah. And then we're doing so over a very quick time period, which makes sense. Right. Well, so the actual bending is not over a quick time no, period. No, 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 no. Yeah. Once so the bending is, they say quasi-static, which just means it's happening where you could stop at any point in time and the result. Right, right, right. Once you've got that first initial break. Yeah, then things happen real fast. They happen at something that they had to figure out, which was the speed of sound in spaghetti. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. That's beautiful. <laughs> right. So an elastic wave can propagate at some fixed speed. That's the whole basis of seismology, is that elastic waves propagate at different speeds and different kinds of rock. Yeah, because if uh, they don't, everything you've said is crap. Exactly. <laughs> and, well, you know, seismology is a little... Look, I was trying to be nice uh, <laughs> in this whole positive, <laughs> positive uplifting show. <laughs> yeah, so it's propagating at some fixed speed mm-hmm. down the piece of spaghetti. Mm-hmm. And what happens is as this piece of spaghetti is has this elastic wave that propagates down, it turns out to be self-similar, which is cool if you're into fractals. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that sent and, me down a wiki hole for a while, I will say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what it ends up doing is it creates a point of local maximized curvature. So intuitively, this seems, I mean, that seems very intuitive, right? Yeah. And it's sort of what Feynman was on to. Mm-hmm. 
I don't think that anybody had ever really shown its feasibility. Okay. And definitely now, there is, not put the math to it. Yeah. And now there is another uh, another paper that I think there's an animation of it online. I'll have to find and link in. That was actually done by a group of petroleum engineers. Oh. Uh, using some petroleum modeling software where they made some animations of breaking pieces of spaghetti that gets a little tricky because you're dealing with a statistical process. Okay. So if you assume that you're bending at a constant curvature in this idealized spaghetti thing, it's going to break initially wherever the weakest point is, wherever there's some defect. Right. We've talked about defects a lot before. Yeah. Uh, so there's some natural variation where the first break's going to be just by the statistical distribution of defects along the length of the spaghetti. Mm-hmm. And then there's going to be some other statistical distribution as this elastic wave is propagating down as to where it's going to break next. So each break is going to be different slightly. Right. If you do it in your kitchen, you'll see that you don't always get the same length of pieces. But if you did some statistics, if you broke hundreds of pieces of spaghetti, please somebody do this and send us the results <laughs> and measured the length of all the different pieces, you would probably get some interesting distributions. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, so one more outcome ahead. about this, well, besides the fact that they use this specific brand of pasta, which I just, <laughs> in the middle of all this math, I find really funny talking about Borrelia number one. Yes. So they were very specific <laughs> and they tried, uh, let's see, I think they had some different pastas as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so they used these equations and what they wound up working out very well was the timing of the breaks. It was very predictable. It was. And so they, they have this plot, and this is something that physicists do all the time, and it drives everybody that's not a physicist up the wall. <laughs> you non-dimensionalize a problem. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I think it's great. It's fantastic once you wrap your head around it. Yeah. So the idea is it doesn't really matter how many centimeters along the length mm -hmm. or how many milliseconds after the first break. What matters is the relative distance along the length, the relative time after the first break. Right. So what you end up with is all of these plots that have no units on any axes <laughs> because it's distance divided by distance or time divided by time. So it's all these just zero to one or zero to some number ranges that have no units. I think and it it's drives great. people batty. It, I, it, it takes away so much of the complexity. I mean, in my mind, it does. I, I love I love relative. Well, I'm a geologist, so I love relative anythings. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely a fan, but <laughs> be forewarned. And, you know, going to the end of this paper, so that was the last figure in the paper, figure four, that's this non-dimensionalized plot. Mm -hmm. Uh I'm very curious, because they did this with a high-speed camera, which was, I believe, 4,000 frames a second. Uh, maybe only 1,000. No, it was 1,000. It was 1,000. Yeah, so it wasn't even incredibly fast uh, on the time scale that they're talking about. But in the, in the end, they say that you know they're, they're grateful to these people for reviewing and setting up the experiments and all that, and A. Belmonte for early communication of their work. I'm going to take a stab in the dark and say that that is Andrew Belmonte of Penn State who took some of the high-speed video that I have on my YouTube channel with his high-speed uh -huh. camera of granite cores fracturing. Awesome. Awesome. So if that is, that's a nice circle. Uh, and I will link those high-speed videos of granite cores fracturing in as well. See, that's just another... <laughs> Another great thing when you think about all these, you know, very prestigious scientists doing their prestigious stuff and what wound up turning into this paper in physical review letters was, hey, let's stick some spaghetti in that machine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. This is why I love science. <laughs> yeah. And so Destin over at Smarter Every Day also did a video on this. Mm -hmm. And he used a phantom that I believe he got to a quarter of a million frames a second. Oh, my gosh. And did some high-speed video spaghetti breaking and actually showed that it is the spaghetti, it's the elastic wave of the spaghetti trying to straighten out. Oh, neat. That propagates down and increases the local curvature uh -huh. and causes and it to break again. And you can watch it in high-speed video do it. Oh, that's neat. I figured there was a video out there of this, so. 
So high speed cameras and pasta. That's a winning combination too. <laughs> oh, we all know that any high speed camera and X is a winning combo in your book. That's true. <laughs> so predictable. <laughs> <laughs> so again, it's one of these, you know, like you've seen the videos of people dropping slinkies and you'd see the bottom not falling and all of these other fun things. So it's yeah. a it's a speed of communication exactly. issue. Yeah. Very but interesting. Very cool fun paper. I I enjoyed it. And if you have a fun paper or have some opinions on open source or questions, show ideas, whatever you've got for us, we'd love to hear from you. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, well, please send us your um, spaghetti measurements at show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, or just shoot those numbers to us on Twitter at don't panic geo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And then as always, we're on the, uh, Slack chat room swung rocks on the don't panic channel. And until next week, remember don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our